are listening to History Man, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are privileged and excited about having Scott Seifert, attorney at law in the state of North Carolina and author of the book, The First American Declaration of Independence. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Glad to be here. Scott, you are an author of uh, a couple of books on the American Revolution. What's the name of your other book? I'll add one thing to the first uh, title of the first book, The First Declaration of Independence, question mark, which is an important part of the, the discussion of the veracity of the mech deck story, as we call it. I see. Which is interesting, and then we'll get to that. And then the second book I wrote is called Eminent Charlatans. It tells the narrative stories of 12 prominent Charlotte figures throughout Charlotte-Mecklenburg regional history, including King Hagler of the Catawba Indians, uh, it starts with him and his role, in, which is really a South Carolina story as much as anything else. It's it's interesting. This whole area during the colonial period was uh, was kind of a a uh, gray area as far as what was North Carolina and South Carolina. Uh, right. I know that the Brattons in in York County, uh, when they first got their property, their title was actually in Mecklenburg County, or, right. or in, right. in North Carolina. So uh, that that was a it was a big gray area as to which county uh, or which state it was in. Which was a cause of a lot of fights, too, and a lot of property disputes. And so you had settlers here on Sugar Creek, and when the tax collectors from South Carolina would come, they'd say, well, we live in North Carolina. And when the North Carolina tax collectors come, they'd say, we live in South Carolina. Right. And so it was called holding, you know, holding to the state, is what they called it. And they pretend that because no one knew where the lines were, so, right. which caused a lot of chaos. So the first Declaration of Independence question mark I wrote mm-hmm. uh, as a, out of a personal interest in what we call locally the Mechdeck story, the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence story. Okay. And a friend of mine, and, and briefly how I got interested in that was a buddy of mine was telling me the story of how Mecklenburg County had seceded from Great Britain in the summer of 1775 and was the first municipal body to do that in the American colonies. And I said, you're making all this up. I've never heard this is impossible. And he said, no, it's true. So we started a group called the May 20th Society uh, to re to bring back this cool civic story. And as, as part of our work in that project, I became what I call the regimental historian of the group. And so I did all the research and would write the website content and, so, and do blogs and so forth. And I looked up about five years ago and realized I was the world's leading expert on this obscure historical curiosity. And that led to the writing of the book. Very good. Where can they get, their, get your book? So you can get the first Declaration of Independence question mark at uh, Amazon. Uh, you can also get it locally at Park Road Books uh, here in Charlotte. Well, tell me how uh, how this declaration came came about. I know our listeners would be interested in that. I know we talked before we started recording that uh, after the Intolerable Acts, all up and down the co- colonies, there were resolves and and petitions that were sent to the uh, uh, to England uh, to the King to hear, and and many of them were returned not even heard. Uh, but tell me how, how this transpired here in this, this area of the country. So, so th- you're exactly right. So uh, petition to government, which is enshrined in the Bill of Rights, of course, was, was what these people did. So when in 1765, for example, when the Stamp Act is passed or the Intolerable Acts, the coercion of Bar- Boston and so forth, various counties would, uh, would get together and they would all get very upset, usually. And they would write a petition to the governor or the king through the governor saying, we, you know, while we are loyal British subjects, we are opposed to the acts of Lord North and so forth and so on. Or here in Mecklenburg County in 1767, uh, which was a Presbyterian, almost solely Presbyterian um, community, 
They were very upset at having to pay taxes to Anglican ministers. They were very upset at the Anglican laws that did not allow them to marry without an Anglican minister performing the ceremony. So they wrote a series of petitions uh, saying, we are highly aggrieved and injured by the acts by the Anglican Church. And this is their way of complaining to the government for redress. So you see in 17, well, really throughout the, you know, the entire colonial period, various resolutions from all of the counties here locally, Mecklenburg, Rowan, uh, Tryon County, and in South Carolina, the various counties, on whatever the political hot topic of the day was. And so what you see in the summer of 1775, after the battles of Lexington and Concord, which occur in April of 1775, those occur, you see a bunch of resolutions from various counties saying this is terrible, uh, we are strongly opposed to this. This happens in Charleston. This happens in, in upcountry South Carolina, Mecklenburg County, Rowan. So, and in fact, the last chapter of my book, I go through all these various resolutions and how they're written and what they sound like. And what happened here in Mecklenburg County was you have 19, uh, between 19 and 25 local militia leaders, all Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. Now, you've you brought that <clears throat> up a couple of times. Yeah. And, uh Tell me what the significance of the Scotch-Irish Presbyterian right. are. So that's a great point. So this area and much of South Carolina, um, in North and South Carolina, is settled by Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. And these are considered by the, the English and the British as sort of the lowest of the low. In fact, some of the quotes of the period are, you know, quote, they're the worst vermin on earth says an Anglican minister. So if you ever have time, read, get a copy of Charles Woodmason's uh, diaries and read him because they're hilarious, um, inadvertently hilarious. But he describes that, you know, they hate the Scotch-Irish Presbyterian, and that feeling was reciprocated. So the British didn't like them. They thought they were crooks. Uh, they were rebellious. They were, they were treasonous, uh, especially as Presbyterians, right, which was a dissident religious sect, which is anti-Anglican, anti-Church of England. So they settle here in the back country of North and South Carolina because they're trying to get away from British rule. They're leaving Pennsylvania and so forth. They're leaving the East Coast, you know, the big colonies of Charleston, New Bern, and they're trying to get as far away as they can from the British, which is coming here because you're in the middle of the woods so they can practice their religion and be left alone. So when the British start in imposing upon them and showing up here, uh, there's a lot of tension and animosity. So to understand the Mechdex story, you have to start with the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. I see. I see. That's the importance of that. Yeah. So what happens in May of 1775 is uh, 26 or so local militia leaders are meeting in the log courthouse in the center of Charlotte, what's now Charlotte, Trade and Tryon Streets. So that is literally right down the... Right literally down, downstairs. Downstairs. From where we sit in the center of Charlotte. The big Bank of America corporate tower is built on the homestead of Thomas Polk. And he had the courthouse built in his front yard. I see. Which is why Charlotte is where it is. Because if you think about it, there's no logical reason it should be here versus in Concord or, or in South Carolina or anywhere else. But it was here because Thomas Polk made it here because he put the courthouse here. So they happen to be meeting in the courthouse when they get an express rider from Philadelphia arrives and tells them that the battles of Lexington and Concord have occurred. And they go completely ballistic. And for 24 hours, they debate a series of resolutions that we now know as the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And they declare themselves in the county free and independent of great British rule. And this is, occurs on May 20th, 1775. And Thomas Polk reads the Mech deck from the courthouse steps and everybody throws their hats in the air. And this is why you have the date May 20th, 1775 on the North Carolina state flag to this day, okay. the North Carolina state seal. You will see the first in freedom license plates, North Carolina license plates around town, and so forth and so on. So we started 
And I just thought this was a really interesting story of which I knew nothing. Right. And so as an amateur and sort of historical hobbyist, I just took this on and said, I want to learn everything there is to learn. You know, in law enforcement, they say if it's not written down, it didn't happen. Right. So right. the question would be, all these other resolves were sent to various outlets, like the ones in South Carolina were sent to the South Carolina Gazette down in Charleston. Were these MECDEC uh, documents sent to a gazette somewhere, or a newspaper? So this is a great part of the story. So um, this is actually probably the best part of the story. So. Th- after the meeting that occurs in late May and various resolutions are passed, what do they say? We don't entirely know with 100% accuracy. They are given to a local tavern owner named Captain James Jack, and they say, deliver these to the Second Continental Congress, which is meeting in Philadelphia. So he does. So Captain Jack takes the resolutions. He rides to Philadelphia. There's corroborating witnesses of this. Um, the ride is not in doubt, and he delivers these resolutions to the North Carolina delegates. In when Congress. you say it's not in doubt, what do you mean by that? So there's n- there's no historical debate about whether Captain Jack rode to Philadelphia. Okay. The debate is what was he carrying. So the skeptics of the Mechdeck story will say all he may have been carrying are these Mecklenburg resolves, which we found, which are interesting, but so what? And so the Mechdeck people will say, no, 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 he's carrying those, but he's also carrying you know, the legendary mech deck, we believe, although we admit we don't have a copy of it. So something happened. So there was something important enough happened that they sent a messenger to Philadelphia on a very dangerous ride. Of course, he's carrying treasonable documents. If he's caught, uh, he would be captured and hanged by the British. The debate is what was he carrying? So who were the signers of this? You got Polk and and, uh, Captain Jack. Was he a signer? So that's a good question. So you have, um, the short answer is no one's 100% sure. And the reason for that is everything we know about this story is basically uh, reconstructed by witnesses in 1830 saying, I was there, here's who participated, you know, these people were all there. And their stories line up 95% of the time. Now you have, may one have, like you're in law, ex-law enforcement, so you may have one outlier guy who somebody says was there that nobody else mentions. Or the opposite, everybody says John McNeil Alexander was there and so forth. And you have 20 or so witnesses, and all of their accounts are pretty much the same. And if you believe the accounts, then you have 20-ish people signing, and they include Thomas Polk, um, all of the Alexander people, sort of John McNeil Alexander, Hezekiah Alexander, and so forth. Uh, You have Waitstill Avery, who is the first attorney general of North Carolina. So these are sort of important people of the period. They're not just random people and names thrown out that no one knows who they are. They're important people. Captain Jack is not a signer, nor is he a participant. He's just the messenger, which is ironic because he sort of gets all the, the credibility and, and uh, press for the story now, right, with the Captain Jack beer locally, and you've got the Captain Jack as the local soccer team's signature and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's those sorts of people. And, and it's interesting, you know, I do, I do talks and, and speeches, and a, a lot of these descendants of folks are still here. So you meet them all the time, and, and they're like, my, my great-great-great-grant was... John Ford, for example. There's a lot of John Ford people. There's tons of Alexander people here. And this, is, this story is very real and, you know, uh, intimate to them. I appreciate you saying what you're saying. The, the descendants of those heroes are still here. Yeah. And, and they still hold those uh, as sacred trust in their families. That's and, right. And, and, a, uh, and a sense of pride in their, in, their, in their families. So the leaders of this community, and you've mentioned several of them, the Alexanders, Polk, and uh, Ford, what was their role in the actual revolution? 
So did, did yeah. they hold to the patriot uh, patriot line, or did they they sway over to the other side? Uh, of um, so the people we know about, Thomas Polk, for example, is a very prominent um, Revolutionary War actor. Uh, his son William Polk is fought, is uh, injured very badly at the, at the Battle of Brandywine. Uh, Polk is a, uh, a commissar or commissioner, sorry, for the um, for the Revolutionary War armies locally. He reports to, to Nathaniel Green. He's writing to General Washington. So he's very prominent in this area in the Revolutionary War, the Polks are. Uh, Ephraim Brevard, who's an interesting character, is a doctor. He serves with the Revolutionary War, the, the Patriot forces, is captured at the fall of Charleston in May of 1780, is uh, put on one of these uh, prison ships in the harbor where people got typhus and all sorts of terrible diseases. He's released. In the summer of um, 1780, as part of the prisoner exchange, he walks home where he dies. So Brevard, North Carolina, is named after him, as is Brevard Street. He's very interesting, uh, and he dies, I think, age 31. So it's an interesting, very sad story. Uh, Waits to Lavery, as I say, becomes part of the um, is part of the Revolutionary War forces, first attorney general. Uh, William R. Davy, who's associated with the story, although not a participant in the story, he's associated because many of the Mechdeck papers are given to Davy in trust. And are found in his papers after his death. Is that right? And there's a copy of the Mechdeck called the Davy copy. And what happens is it's given to William R. Davy. And when they start looking for all this evidence about 1830, they find this Davy copy. And it's ripped in half. And it's, uh, you know, and it's not in great shape. And his kids had used it for scratch paper or whatever. But it still exists. It's in the Chapel Hill Library. It's perfectly legible. So that's part of the, so Davy's considered part of this story, an ancillary part. So there's a lot of cool sort of interact. Joseph Graham's another great story. So Joseph Graham also is a very famous Revolutionary War leader. He and Davy lead the militia forces repelling Cornwallis at the Battle of Charlotte, which occurs in September of 1780, as they march south uh, through Camden uh, towards Charlotte, uh, fights them literally downstairs in the center of Charlotte. Joseph Graham is also a major witness to the Mechdeck story. In fact, he's got a five-page account of being a 16-year-old school kid and watching the whole thing transpire and explaining who was there and so forth to learn about this. So is there some question about the actual date? There's a bigger question about the whole story, right? Okay. And so that, and that's part of the interesting part, especially for me as an attorney. I was sort of marshalling the evidence pro and con about the Mechdeck story, and that was the origin of the book. And the controversy about the Mechdeck story is that all the original papers are lost in a fire in April of 1800. And so the guy, one of the leading participants in the story, is a guy named John McNitt Alexander. The Alexander is one of the leading families here, very well-known, well-regarded, well-respected. And his home burns down in April of 1800, and he's the keeper of all the records. So when the story of the Mechdeck bursts upon the national scene about 1820, he says, look, we, we don't no longer have the original, original records, but the story's true. We have all these eyewitnesses and so forth. And this starts an entire national historical controversy called the Mecklenburg Controversy. And Thomas Jefferson and, jo and John Adams debate each other in writing about whether it's true or not. And that controversy is essentially unresolved to this day because the original papers are lost. Now, you have a lot of evidence pro, you have some evidence con, and you have all these various historians writing pro-con books and debates going on, but it can never be settled because the original papers are missing. So tell me about the origin. So the controversy originates after the American Revolution. And Charlotte is a small town of, you know, 25 buildings, wooden structures, and maybe 100 people that live here. And the American Revolution, as it does throughout the South, 
uh, and the, the passing of the armies and the British and the militia moving back and forth sort of decimates this whole area. And people are impoverished or killed. They leave. They move to Tennessee. And the whole area is kind of a wasteland after the American Revolution. But after, in about 1820, various states start you know, trying to take credit for the American Revolution, the Bostonians, the Virginians, and so forth. And so the Mecklenburg people said, you know, we had the first Declaration of Independence here, and we're going to prove it. So what they did is uh, they went back and found the eyewitnesses. They went and back and found the documents. And they find in John McNett Alexander's house, and he is the guy whose house burns down and loses the original papers, but they find some other papers. And they find this long account of the MacDeck story, the story we've been talking about, the Declaration of Independence, how it's sent by Captain Jack to Congress, and so forth and so on. Was it something he had just written or something? Great question. So it's, co it's called The Copy in a Hand Unknown. It's not clear when it was written okay. or by whom, and it's undated. It's perfectly legible, very clear, and McNed Alexander's son finds it. Right, McNed is dead at this point, his father, Joseph McNed. He finds it and he says, it's clearly legit. I don't know who wrote it or when. I found it rolled up in some Revolutionary War pamphlets dated 1778. Not clear who wrote it, but it doesn't matter. We all know the story locally is true. So he prints this in the Raleigh Register with an annotation. He candidly says, I don't know who wrote it, but it is, you know, it's a copy of the original records. And he prints this. And this sets off this whole controversy because this paper finds its way to retired President John Adams in Massachusetts. And Adams reads this and has an extraordinary reaction. He writes a letter to Thomas Jefferson. He says, quote, the genuine sense of America at that moment has never so well been expressed before nor since. Close quotes. What does that mean? Well, that means he thinks Jefferson, first of all, he's needling Jefferson, who he doesn't like, right? Who's never, who's not been a friend of him for many years. So he's needling Jefferson. Privately, Adams begins writing to others and saying, Jefferson stole the Declaration of Independence. He plagiarized from these Mecklenburg resolutions, which I have seen. Three or four letters, he writes this. He thinks he's finally caught Jefferson, who he believes to be a fraud, in a fraudulent act. Incredible, right? So yeah. Jefferson is unimpressed by this, and he writes a letter back to Adams in which he said, a very lengthy letter, uh, five pages or so, in which he says, you know, I've never heard of these resolutions. No historians have quoted them. I knew the North Carolina delegates. They never mentioned them. Uh, and his summing up line to Adams uh, from Jefferson is, um, uh, for the moment I must be a disbeliever in the apocryphal gospel, close quotes. He says, you seem to think them genuine. I believe them spurious. They said to prove it to me. Prove it to me. So that's where the bad lines are. You got the Jeffersonians and the Adams. And the Adams people saying, you know, Jefferson's a fraud. He clearly stole the mech deck. He plagiarized from it. Of which, by that? the way, there's no evidence. No, no. That's a little unfair when they're, when all these colonies are sending right. their resolves or their right. statements to Pennsylvania. Right? That's right. And, and this actually turns into a red herring in the whole story, because for a hundred years, the Mechdeck debate, whether it's true or not and so forth, becomes this sort of tangential debate about whether Jefferson's a plagiarist or not, right? And, and, and that's an unnecessary distraction, and that sort of discredits a lot of people in the area who are saying, look, the story, you can believe the story's true and not say Jefferson plagiarized from it either, but it distracts everybody for 200 years on the story. Right. So that's, and that's kind of where the battle lines are. And so the North Carolina governor in 1832 summons a commission to study the issue, gets the eyewitnesses, finds the papers and so forth. So, so the study was actually 
directed by the governor of North Carolina yeah, to do? He, he wrote the forward to there's the, it's the last official act on this. 1832, the government publishes a report, like the Mueller commission of its time, to investigate the veracity of the Mechtex story. You can find it. It still exists. And they conclude that it's true. And that's the last official act. That is crazy. How about that? That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So this Jefferson Adams debate goes on for 80 years, and historians write papers and debate the whole thing mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. President Polk, who's, of course, the great-grand nephew, who's Thomas Polk's uh, direct relative, sends historians to London to look into this whole story and says, we're going to prove this once and for all because he has a great interest in this. They find in the London papers what they think is a missing copy of the Mecklenburg Declaration in a paper of the period. But it has been, they find it in the British War Office. It has been removed. In that file is a piece of paper that says removed at the request of Andrew Stevenson. Well, who's Stevenson? Stevenson is the British ambassador to London at the time. Stevenson is from Virginia. Stevenson is a friend of Jefferson's. And that copy of whatever was in the file is never seen again. After he comes back from Virginia, sorry, from London on his mission as U.S. ambassador, he becomes president of the University of Virginia. What does this prove? You tell me. How's that for interesting, though? Sometimes there actually is a conspiracy, right? Is it in question that there actually were serious resolves against the British government in that time in this part of the country? No. That's not in question. That's not in question. The only question in, in this entire debate now is what did these resolves say? And the reason for that is the original MECDEC, which is the Declaration of Independence, so to speak, of, of Mecklenburg County, is gone, except through historical memories of people and through some sort of fragmentary papers that still exist and float around. But what confuses everybody is something called the Mecklenburg Resolves, which are found in a South Carolina paper in June of 1775. And these don't look and sound like what all the witnesses say the MECDEC is supposed to look and sound like. They say things like, Eric, now that we're into free and independent, you're in charge of gunpowder, we're having court every other week, and so forth and so on. So if you believe the Mechdeck story, you say, right, these are corroborating resolves of the whole story. This is not the Mechdeck. This is corroboration of the whole thing. If you are a skeptic of the Mechdeck story, you say, this is all that happened. You've got these these rebellious resolutions but as you point out, the Camden passed or the Columbia passed. All these counties and states passed, or municipalities passed them, so who cares? But no, it's not in question. There were, re- there were treasonable resolutions passed. The Mecklenburg resolves of May 31st, 1775 are not in dispute. They still exist. We have copies of them. They're in the Charleston Library. But the debate is, is this the MECDEC? Was the MECDEC something else? What did the MECDEC say? The, it's complicated. Well, it like it's complicated. <laughs> That's why I took a book to sort all this. It is interesting to me how young uh, these leaders were. We, we mm-hmm. talked about William Davis. Yeah, well, wars are fought by kids, right, at the, right. At the end of the that's day, right. even this old war, so to speak. That's right. So William Davy was interesting. We had a uh, episode by Kip Carter at the Battle of Hanging Rock with and his cooperation with Thomas Sumter. He's at a pivotal moment in several of the different stories, several of the different battles, right? Yeah. And, and uh, one of the reasons why Charlotte is called uh, the Hornet's Nest is because of William Davy, yes or no? Sort of. I mean, it, it, it's called, you know, the story, origin of that story is as the British were foraging for provisions in October of 1780 up Beatty's Ford Road, they were at the, the home of a, a gentleman named uh, McIntyre. 
and as they're stealing his various chickens and cows and whatnot, um, depending on which story you hear, the British uh, knock over a hornet's nest at the same time that they are fired upon by the brother of Joseph Graham, George Graham, and a militia group of you know a dozen guys. And Cornwallis, and they're forced to retreat into Charlotte, and Cornwallis or Tarleton or somebody says famously, Charlotte's a damned hornet's nest of rebellion. Uh, we have looked for the origin of that quote, by the way, with some diligence over the last several years, including all the Cornwallis papers, and no one could exactly pinpoint who said it or when. But, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like the Mechdex story. The overall veracity of the story is clearly true. And the British clearly treated this as, you know, hostile territory and were forced to retreat after just two weeks here. And all of the papers of Cornwallis and Tarleton, I mean, Tarleton famously writes in his memoirs uh, after the war, uh, it had been frequently mentioned to the king's officers and was evident that the counties of Mecklenburg and Rowan were more hostile to England than any other in America, close quote. It's a pretty good quote, right? That's a pretty good quote. And Cornwallis has similar. He has four or five quotes, one of which is, you know, these Carolinas are more inveterate uh, than any part of the colonies, including the Jerseys, things like that. So so it's part of the overall interest of the story, and that's where the hornet's nest comes from. So okay. who said it? Does it matter? Not really. I mean, that was somebody said it, and it's part of the sort of story of the period. Perception comes becomes reality. That's right. right? That's right. So, what's your favorite story? Uh, so, the Mectic story is a great. The Captain Jack story is great because you've got the horse guy riding to Philadelphia to deliver the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and risking life and limb. You know, captured by the British. You know, as we say, um, you know, Paul Revere rode twelve miles and got captured. You know, Captain Jack rode for 30 days and made it. So, but who gets all the credibility, right? Paul Revere does. Why? Because Longfellow wrote a poem about him. But this goes back to a bigger point that you made earlier, which is, which is what made this interesting to me, is the whole part of the story, was all of this war in the South, the Southern campaigns, really kind of got overshadowed by a narrative that happened probably largely after the Civil War, that the revolution starts in Lexington Concord. It all occurs in Boston and New England, and then Yorktown happens. When what, and so the Southern campaigns, the Mechdex story, Hanging Rock Camp, is all swept aside and sort of dismissed because this happened in the middle of the woods, largely, in small, unpopulated areas in the South in a period where the South was not in fashion, so to speak, or favorable. So the, the Northern historians took the story over. And, and a lot of this history just got kind of dismissed as of marginally importance when, you know, as Thomas Jefferson said, the Battle of Kings Mountain was the turning of the tide. I mean, most of the Guilford Courthouse, Camden, uh, you can go on and on. Charleston. These were major engagements over two years that really defined the American Revolution, but for many years weren't discussed or taught that way. And that's been part of the fun of bringing this back. You know, people come to Charlotte and they say, what a great city. It's obviously 12 years old. So when you can get into this history and explain, you know, the British march burned the city down and Cornwallis stood right there and sort of people are like, wow, this is amazing. You know, how would you'd never know that because there's right. not much to see. There's a tangible remnants of it. So I would imagine that there would be some listeners from uh, the New England states that would say, eh, okay, you're crying over spilt milk here. (laughs) Are you crying over spilt milk? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, if you think about it, um, all of the major engagements that end to the end of British rule in America occur south of Virginia over a period of two years. So, yes, and this is sort of how the Mechdex story starts, by the way. So the Mechdex story starts, this is what's interesting, in about 1820, uh, all the people in Massachusetts say, right, the American Revolution is a story of Massachusetts. It's uh, Samuel Adams. It's the Boston Tea Party. It's our deal. The Virginians say, no, 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 no. This is Patrick Henry. This is Thomas Jefferson. This is a Virginia story. And the North Carolina people say, wait, wait a second. 
um, we had a declaration of independence here before anybody else. And of course, the rest of the country says, that's ridiculous, prove it. And that kicks this whole thing off. But again, Guilford Courthouse is one of the major engagements of the American Revolution. King's Mountain, where an entire army is destroyed almost to a person, right? And then the British Army is forced to surrender at Yorktown. So half of the story of the American Revolution, not the whole story, but half of the story all occurs in the South. But again, it occurs in places like Guilford Courthouse. You're in the middle of the woods. There's a courthouse there. It occurs in Charlotte, population 200. Right, so it doesn't have the cachet. It, it doesn't occurs in a cow pen. Yeah, it occurs in cow pens, right? So you're not in Boston. You don't have this. You don't have even to this day. I mean, what do you go see if you want to go see the Battle of Camden or cow pens? There's nothing there, right. right? You can't go to downtown Boston or Philadelphia. So they have an interest in promoting it and touristizing it, which is fair and legitimate. But it gets a disproportionate story told about the war in the North versus the South, or historically has. That's changing actually. But that's been sort of the narrative thus far. What would you want people to take away from their visit to Charlotte or to this area in regards to the Revolution? The Revolutionary War story in North Carolina, South Carolina, and particularly Mecklenburg County, candidly, is a large part of who we are. It's the authentic story of this region. It describes the settlers that were here. It's the Hornet's Nest Rebellion. It is, you know, for 250 years, the most important thing that happened here. It's what Charlotte and Mecklenburg County was known for when they built the Washington Monument. They asked every state to contribute one stone that described your state. And the stone that is in the Washington Monument for North Carolina says, Declaration of Independence, May 20th, 1775. You can see it and you walk inside. So this was again, the legacy and the trust of the people that lived here for many, many years as the most important thing happening. Things happened since, but it's a, but people lose that and they don't know about the revolution and they don't care because, again, you don't have, there's no remnants of it left. You can't go see the old North Church. You can see stuff like that in Charleston. You can't in most of these southern cities. You can't hear. Uh, it doesn't mean nothing happened here. So we've, so our fun has been just telling this story, which people think is kind of cool and interesting and we think it's cool and interesting so it's just you know in your history because if you don't know your history how can you make decisions about your present or your future on a uh, on a side note it, it strikes me that when we talk about a revolution the founding fathers or these leaders in all of these communities took special effort not to be a mob but to put it, put it down on paper it was more of a cerebral task for them to grow to a point where they felt like they could be independent from britain is, is right. or is that how you view that or yeah i think so i mean i'd say it slightly differently which is to put a modern spin on it in the year 2020 many of the political debates we are having ultimately boil down to your view of principles or writings that were set down in the revolutionary period and whether we still subscribe to them or don't and what they meant and were they properly written were they too narrow and that's all the debates that are going on in one way or the other right now so without an understanding of you know what did madison mean when he wrote this why did they set up the electoral college what does it mean to be free and independent what did it mean to be free of, of Great Britain? Why, why did they care? You know, it's the first decolonial movement in the world, right? So all of these major ideas and concepts which were first formed here, and a lot of them had the genesis in the South, if one doesn't understand those or have any context, then you, how would you have an opinion about what's going on in the world today? So what does liberty, what does freedom mean to you? <laughs> so I, I think I subscribe to the Edwin Burkean view of freedom, which is essentially the freedom of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and freedom from government constraint, except where necessary, in the common good. And that's, you know, that's the debate, right? What is the common good, and how much can the government impose upon one?
let's plug your books just one more time. That sounds you, good. You've got two books. Uh, uh, the one we've talked about today is the first uh, American Declaration of Independence, question mark. Question mark. And your second book? Uh, Eminent Charlatans, which tells, uh, as I say, uh, it's very top-heavy or bottom-heavy, we should say, on the Revolutionary War. So King Hegler, Joseph Graham, Captain Jack, and so forth. So if, if any of the stories of that period are of interest, they're told. And they're not just Mechdeck stories. That's that's how this book came to be. There were a lot of really cool stories about that period that didn't sort of neatly fit in the Mechdeck story I was telling. So I went back, and jo, uh, Thomas Spratt's a good example, who fought in the American Revolution, was injured uh, Spratt, Hagler, Joseph Graham, and so forth. So there's there's all these great stories around us if you just look for them. How would they get your book? You can get them on Amazon or locally if you want to support a local bookseller, Park Road Books Very here good. in Charlotte. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Okay.